0: Father, we ascribe glory to Your name. This morning we say as this song states that we love You, but we love You not of our own accord and not most fundamentally because of our will and choosing. We love You because You first loved us and gave Your Son to die on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you would sanctify, bless and multiply, that you would convict and sharpen and equip every byproduct of our soul, so as to give glory to your name with greater degree with each passing day. Lord, I also pray as we study your word this morning, that if it were possible, you would allow us to feel some measure of what your servant felt when he was moved by your spirit to write these very words. Help us to remember, Lord, they came by inspiration of the God of this universe, communicating his very nature to us lowly sinners, in order that you might be pleased to perfect a witness in us, to shine and to testify that it is you that created, that you that has purposed. And You that has redeemed, everyone blessed with the call to carry forward Your glory for as many years as You tarry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title for this morning's message I mentioned earlier in the service is Battle Hymn of the Afflicted. Battle Hymn of the Afflicted. The psalm, which will be our text this morning, is Psalm chapter 9. We'll have some territory to cover and our outline will be slightly more extended than usual. I hope to move through it efficiently. If it would be helpful for you, and if you don't have it already, there's some outlines printed in the back by the tithe box. And feel free to steal out and grab one if that would be helpful for you if you don't have one, as I say. In Psalm chapter 9, I'll give you a moment to turn there. We find some recurring themes already as we've been studying the Psalms. We've gotten to the ninth chapter, second Sunday of the month. We've been studying a Psalm each month and we see that one of these recurring themes is the sovereignty of God and it pleases the Lord in telling us the extent, the parameters, the boundaries, the reach of His sovereignty to use over and again in the Scriptures the example of nations, peoples, powers, The biggest powers in our imagination that we can conjure up in ourself, in our coalitions, in this life as humans are used time and again as examples in Scripture of how much more powerful God is. In other words, when we hear the term Lord ascribed to Christ, when we hear words, descriptions of Him like King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and then we see them applied to the reality of power structures, authority structures like nations, what we can conclude over and again in Scripture is that God is saying that there is no nation more powerful than Him. There is no authority on earth that trumps His own. And every one of the players of history, whether for good or for evil, somehow inevitably find themselves used in His ultimate purpose and plan to bring about His every will for history both in His blessings and in His judgments. That brings us to Psalm chapter 9. I would invite you to read the entire chapter with me as we open this psalm. Remember as we do so that this is written by David as the title in your Bible probably reflects. It's a psalm given to a choir master, so it's meant to be sung in a worship service like ours this morning. And it's poetry as we read, but it's profound and full of truth and power. Psalm 9. Verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Verse 6. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you, ro- you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And for those who know your name, put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Verse 11, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. David writes more personally in verse 13, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises. And in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. And then verse 15, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made in the net that they hid. Their foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared by the works of their hands. The wicked shall return to shale all the nations that forget God for the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O God. Let the nations know that they are but men. David opens this psalm, verses 1 and 2, with a declaration of what he will do in light of all this truth he has just declared. He will give thanks to the Lord. He will recount his wonderful deeds. He will be glad and exalt in Him. He will sing praise to His holy name. The truths of God's judgment and justice and His righteousness and His forbearance, His loving kindness and His long-suffering, both extended to those who deny Him in judgment and extended to those in mercy who affirm Him and trust Him to the afflicted, those themes are worthy of thanks, they're worthy of recounting, They're worthy of joy and exaltation. They're worthy of praise. And David makes a vow in the first two verses that he will do just that. He vows. He makes a commitment. I will give thanks. When I consider the fearful and terrifying judgments of the Lord deserving of the wicked. When I consider the length and breadth of his love. Toward those who place their trust in him. Now under the thumb of tyranny but soon to be delivered. Through their Christ. Who died on their behalf. When he considers those truths. He makes a vow. I will give thanks. I will remember. I will worship. I will rejoice. I will exalt. I will give glory to your name. If the two verses that open this chapter. State the vow that David has committed. In light of this truth. Then verses 11 and 12. Might be considered a commandment. A commandment for the convicted hearers to do the same. Verses 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the wicked. These truths are worthy of a vow and they're worthy of exhortation. I will do them and you must do them. I must worship and you must worship or dire consequences are the only option. This message is organized by three questions. I'll give them to you briefly to organize your thoughts as we move along and try to understand some of the depth that is contained in these verses we just read. Number one, first question, whose song is this? Two-part question, whose song is this? And And to whom do they sing? Whose song is this, and to whom do they sing? Secondly, where was this song to be sung? When was the appropriate time? Where would it best be displayed and offered as suitable worship to the Lord? Where was this song to be sung? Question number three, which will be the main portion of the message, the second half, I trust. What is the occasion for worship in this song? We've alluded to it already. What of this song, by way of theme, offers a suitable occasion for this kind of a worship anthem, this kind of battle hymn to be sung wholeheartedly, triumphantly in faith from the hearts of the faithful, those who believe. In reference to the first question, whose song is this? There's several references to the afflicted. We've titled this message, The Battle Hymn of the Afflicted. We get this title from the text itself. In verse 9 of this chapter, we read, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who trust, I'm sorry, those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. This is a song for those that fall into this category the oppressed, the afflicted. But more than that, There's a primary category, not just the oppressed, the afflicted, the destitute, and as verse 18 describes, the needy and the poor. But before that secondary category of being those who are poor in this life, poor in spirit and persecuted, as Matthew 5 puts it, as we've been reading in the New Testament, the primary category of who this song is for, I think, is found in verse 10, as David writes, And those who know your name put their trust in you. The battle hymn of the afflicted is fitted for the lips of those who know his name. Those who know his name and trust what his name represents. Those who trust who God is. His revelation, his self revealed person in scripture, his ways his characteristics, his attributes, his worth, his works, and his very nature. Who Whose song is this? This is a song for those. It's appropriately sung and expressed from the hearts of those who know his name. Also, you could add in that first category, those who rejoice in his salvation. David describes himself in this way, verse 14, that I may recount All your praises, using himself as an example of those who might be oppressed in this life, but ultimately trust his name to be triumphant in the next. David says in verse 14, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. This song is an anthem. It begs the world to listen to the anthem. Listen to the anthem, springing from the hearts persecuted for righteousness' sake, In this life, but trusting God's victorious overcoming power for the next. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, they sing a song of faith triumphant and it rises to the ears of the king of kings. Though they're under the thumb and in some ways persecuted or in many ways oppressed and afflicted, destitute and poor under the authority structures, nations, cities, peoples, of this hour, of this age, and of this day, they have a song, and it's a battle hymn. It's a battle hymn of faith that the afflicted will one day rise, that the persecuted will one day triumph through their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when He finally and ultimately, at the crescendo and climax of all of history, asserts His every right and power over anybody else that ever mocked His name or any other institution that ever mocked his name. This song is for those who know his name and rejoice in his salvation. This song is for those who realize, as I said, that Jesus is Lord. In this psalm, God is referred to by God once, and it's open and it opens in the second verse by referring to the Lord as O Most High. But nine additional times This psalm refers to God as Lord, a term in Scripture meant to be associated with sovereignty, authority, majesty, kingship, and ultimate rule. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and nine times his character and person is referred to, his name is described as Lord. But it doesn't just, and it doesn't stop there. There's a few more qualifying aspects of god's character that i've circled as i read through this chapter to answer for myself who is this song for well i know it's for those who trust his name what is his name and we find the answer his name is almost high his name is lord his name is god and his name is also enthroned forever in chapter seven but the lord sits enthroned forever more than that in verse eight he judges the world Verse 8, he judges the people. This is describing the Lord. This is describing his power, his sovereignty, his rule. He judges the world, he judges the peoples. Verse 9, he is a stronghold for the oppressed. Verse 11, he's enthroned in Zion. Verse 12, the chilling truth, he avenges blood. And what blood does he not see? What guilty person can escape his all omniscient eyes his all powerful sword there is none so if our Lord is one who avenges blood there is no guilty who will escape there is no no one who in his heart has transgressed the intent of the law who will escape the authority and the indictment of this judge he is just he is strong for the for the oppressed who place their faith in his name but he is an avenger of the blood Of those who don't. Verse 12. Lift me up from the gates of hell. Our Lord is one who has the power. To wrench from the jaws of hell itself. Those that deserve. To go there. He can pry open. The death sentence. And the wrath sentence. On the hell deserving. And rescue them. To heaven eternal. Our God is one who owns. Salvation. Salvation belongs to our God. It's referred to. To as your salvation, verse 14, I may rejoice in your salvation. Our God owns the right to justification. Our God owns the rights to the way, the truth, to salvation, to life. In verse 16, our God executes judgments. And that list is not exhaustive. There's many more to add. So this is the God who those who sing this song worship. Who is this song for those who trust in his name? What is his name? His name is Lord. And all those descriptors can well apply and should be attached to our associations with the Lord. As we sing songs, if we as we've done in this worship service, even this morning. Second question. Where was this to be sung I mentioned that this psalm was for the choirmaster, written by David, presumably offered as a tool of worship meant for an appropriate place and time. And I found as I was reading through that there was references to the public square. So in answer to this question, where was this to be sung? Where should it be lifted up? Is it just church? Is it only church? Is it just meant to be worshiped and offered to the Lord? In a sequestered group or setting or a corner of society, like today, for instance, we find as we read it's much more than that. The call is for this anthem to ring from the public square itself. In verse 11, David writes, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell the people his deeds. Not just tell the people, tell the peoples, plural. Tell among the peoples his deeds. The call is for an ode like this, an anthem, a declaration of praise, an exaltation, and a song, a battle hymn to this degree and magnitude would be offered rightly among the peoples, not just in a church service where believers gather, but let it ring over the airwaves of all the earth. Let it be shouted and echoed from the rooftops, from the courthouse tops, from the streets from the hearts of citizens, from the halls of legislatures, from the throats of missionaries, until the glory of the Lord is proclaimed over the earth as the waters cover the sea. A very public call for this song to be sung. Reiterated in verse 14, David says that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Poetic language, here uses the daughter of Zion to describe the city of Jerusalem. And gates refers to the center of commerce, the center of judgment, the center of decree. If you had a grievance, if you had a business idea, if you had a court case, if you had a news story, if you had anything to share or to field to those, that group of people, you would gather in the gates of a near eastern city and you would declare as much to the elders that gathered there, the magistrates that met to decide cases. It was the center of wisdom, commerce, prosperity, judgments, law, legislature, would we'll all be represented in this term gates. This is the appropriate place for this song to be heralded and sung, declared and proclaimed. David's asking that he may recount his praises. More than that, he's committing to do so in the gates of the daughter of Zion that I may rejoice in your salvation. I realize as I bring this truth to you today from Scripture, if it can be judged rightly so as I have applied it, that this message falls short of its intention if we were just to stay in this group here. I have a call, and you have a call, to bring a message like this and carry a heart with this kind of conviction beyond the borders of our church walls into the public arena the areas where political correctness has said we should not speak out the areas where the liars of society which have said righteousness is to separate the influence of the church from the duty of society that mouth should be silenced that mouth should be challenged by mouth of the believer who would bring the glorifying praises of god through his heart and his convictions into the world around through the gates of the city and using every opportunity in public square and otherwise to trumpet the glories and the truth and absolutes of our God to a dying generation who has a famine, a famine, a a famine in their psyche, longing without even knowing it for the word of the Lord. The prophets filled such a void, though they were few and far between in the Old Testament. But who will stand in the gap in this day if his church remains silent, muted and muffled? We are to hear a message like this and read a psalm like this and embrace it with conviction and see where God might lead us beyond where we are able to go in our flesh or bold enough to go in ourselves that we would have the faith to echo the inarguable glories of our God to every... (laughs)
1: I'm going to go ahead and see if I can get a little bit of a picture of the camera.